0: Welcome to the A Jesus Church Podcast. We're a family seeking to become like Jesus, empowered by His presence to partner in God's creative work of restoring the world. We pray this episode encourages and equips you along the journey. We're all in process, becoming something. Like a potter throwing clay or an artist mixing color, our lives are being formed. Different backgrounds and experiences blemished and cracked. Each day, an opportunity to move into or out of all that God has purposed. So the question isn't if we are becoming, but rather who are we becoming? And in this family, we want to go on the journey of becoming like Jesus.
1: Thank you so much uh, for being here. We are excited to worship with you this morning, excited to open up the scriptures. My name is Tim McDonald. If you're new, uh, I'm the lead pastor here. And I want to start off by saying a special thank you to everybody Uh, on behalf of my wife, Brittany, who's sitting over here, and myself. uh, Thank you for giving us this last couple of weeks to get away. My parents very graciously took us to Maui for two weeks. Um, Yes, and honestly, it was an incredible break of just wonderful time of rest, but it was an awkward season to go right in the middle of a fall, Uh, but, you know, taking the job in June, jumping in, getting running, we just went for it this summer, and so hitting hitting the ground in this fall and being able to actually take a breath before Christmas comes, which by the way, Christmas is coming. Um, I just saw pumpkin spice everywhere, and I now know that Christmas decorations are being sold at Costco. So... Huh, it's crazy how time flies around here. Anyways, uh, just knowing that, it was great to be able to get a bit of a break in the middle of this fall. So we are a Jesus church, and um, this means that we believe that we are him, are here for him, to become like him and to follow his way as our rabbi, as Weston pointed out last week, this ancient picture of us following behind Jesus as our, as our rabbi, to, to to learn to live our life in alignment with his life, the things that he cares about, the things that he values. And as we do, those hopes and dreams and goals, they start to filter into our neighborhoods, into our workplaces, and into our schools. And that's why we've decided to start this series, Becoming Like Jesus, because we believe as we become more and more like him, more and more like the church that God has called us to be, we will see more and more of him in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces. I loved how Weston kind of wrapped up his sermon last week with that amazing sermon by Dr. Lockridge, asking that question, do you know him? And so we're gonna spend the next weeks ahead exploring what does it look like to step into the very real life of Jesus, to follow in his footsteps together. And To do that, we're gonna be looking through the book of Luke. So if you got your Bibles, uh, go ahead and pull them out. If you need a Bible, there's men and women around the room that'd love to get one in your hand. Just go ahead and raise it up. Somebody will find you and get a Bible to you. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to keep this one as a gift. We're going to be looking at Luke 4, verses 1 through 14. And this is the story of Jesus and his temptation in the wilderness. Kind of a famous, pretty crazy story story. It's found in all three of the synoptic Gospels. That's those first three Gospels that are kind of similar to each other. And it comes on the heels of Jesus' baptism after kind of that long list of names, right on the heels. And it's directly linked to the Father's announcement that Jesus is God's only begotten Son, whom he loves dearly and with whom he is well pleased. It's also, though, linked to the story of Genesis, This whole narrative is like this replaying of this moment of Moses up on the mountain fasting for 40 days and receiving the divine word from God. And it also replays the subsequent 40 years of faithless Israel wandering through the desert where God was reforming them into a people who were like linked to him that were provided by his very hand. Jesus is replaying Israel's story, but doing it faithfully. So we want to kind of keep these two ideas in the forefront of our mind as we read through this passage. But if you would all stand to your feet, let's read out. I'm going to read out this scripture over us. Luke 4, verses 1 through 14 says this Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan. And was led by the spirit into the wilderness, where, for 40 days, he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. The devil said to him, "If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread." And Jesus answered, "It is written: "Man shall not live on bread alone." And the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world, and he said to him, I will give you all of their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, Throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. But Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all of his tempting, he left him until an opportune time. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. Father, we thank you for the scripture. We thank you for your words. And right now, Lord, we thank you for being a God who sent his son to show us what it means to be fully human and to show us your heart. And Lord, right now, we pray that you would just be our teacher through your Holy Spirit, would you awaken the scriptures inside of us? Would you help us to understand who you are so that we can follow you with all that we are? We love you, Lord. And so we fix our eyes on you this morning and pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Let me grab a seat. I was in 11th grade. Any uh, high school students in the house here this morning? Yeah? I was in 11th grade and I remember being in English class, not because I remember a lot about the class. I'm sure I learned some stuff. Um, But I remember the teacher, she was super grumpy uh, and she was kind of one of those teachers I was pretty pretty, pretty convinced had it out for me. I really remember two very distinct things from the class. My future... Wife was sitting in that class off to the side. Yes, uh, and I remember at one point in time having uh, tape applied to my mouth by the teacher. I'm, I kid you not, that that really happened. Yeah, wrapped my face up in tape, uh, and I don't know, maybe I was talking. I don't, I don't even remember. Uh, but I also remember one other distinctive thing. I remember after class wrestling with the class. I, I just really wrestled with writing. And I remember the teacher saying, you're going to be lucky if you pass this class. And I walked out of that experience kind of like, man, I don't like English very much. Why do we have to speak English? You know? Um, But the next semester, I had this other class with Coach Brack. My first memories of Coach Brack were actually out on the football field where he was yelling and screaming at me for I needed to pick up my feet more and run faster and Stop, you know, lollygagging. Coach Brack was an intimidating, terrifying man, okay? He only had like two levels, one that was like really, really loud and angry and the other that was dangerously quiet. Those were his only two levels, but he also taught social studies. And I remember after one of his classes, very intimidatingly, walking up to him because I hadn't done well on a paper. and, And, you know, him starting to kind of chew me out a little bit, but then me just saying like, Coach, I don't, I don't know how to write. I've already been told by the English teacher that I don't know how to write very well. And I remember something changing in his eyes. It was maybe that competition spirit. He was like, I'm gonna prove that person wrong. I promise you, McDonald, if you do what I tell you to do, I will make a writer out of you. About two and a half years later, I wrapped up my first year of university-level English with an A+. I went on to write uh, many, many papers for philosophy and later on for theology, uh, and I became one of those people that the teachers would say, this guy knows how to write. And I owe so much to this guy, Coach Brack, this terrifying man. I don't even remember the name of my English teacher, but I remember Coach Brack We live in a day and age in a time where our identity is being fed to us all the time. Who we are, who we can't be, who we could never be. It's always being whispered at us. And sometimes they're very encouraging things. Sometimes it's through the lips of people who love us and are speaking life and hope and person into our hearts. And sometimes it's other people who don't love us or frankly have horrible agendas for our life. And we feed on it from our social media. We feed on it through our our iPhones. Fed this message of who we are and who we should be. It seems like identity is completely up for grabs. And then we have those like quiet moments, don't we? Where our own heart whispers to us and it says, something's not right about this life I'm living. It's not the way I thought it would be. I'm not turning out the way I thought I would. Who am I really? One of the first things that we learn about Jesus from the gospel of Luke is that his identity was centered on who his father said he was. He was the son of God. And that didn't mean that Jesus's life immediately became easy. You know, in fact, it actually became quite difficult. It just meant that Jesus's life was clear. He knew who he was. And so the enemy went after his identity, like right out of the gates, as he does with us, all the time. Luke four, verses one through two says this. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days and at the end of them he was hungry. Before Jesus can get to his work, he steps into 40 days of wilderness temptation. 40 days reenacting Israel's difficult journey through the desert wilderness. 40 days wrestling with the enemy and his own physical needs. He is hungry and he's thirsty and the enemy sees an opportunity in this moment to go after his identity and he presses him hard. If you are God's son, prove it. It feels like Jesus is in a tight spot. But Jesus knows who he is. And full of the Holy Spirit, as the new Israel, he successfully navigates these like 39-ish days up to this culmination of the devil's temptations that we read about in this chapter and these verses. The wilderness is a desert expanse. I've, I've actually been there. It just goes on and it's empty and it's dry and it's dangerous 40 days without food or provision, stepping into them is like stepping into death. I mean, Jesus had come from the Jordan and the Jordan represents this symbol of life and provision and, and, and out of that to the wilderness to be with his father, to become strong enough to wrestle with his enemy. The thing is, is if you've read these texts before, we have the luxury of knowing some things that make this moment a little less lopsided. First, Luke is very quick to point out that Jesus is going into the wilderness full of the Holy Spirit full of the Holy Spirit. He connects us back to chapter 3, verse 22, and that baptism moment where the indwelling Spirit comes and abides in him. Remember from our Holy Spirit series, the Holy Spirit abides, dwells in him, filling him, empowering him, strengthening him. But second, Luke uses the word led, the Holy Spirit led. He could have said the Holy Spirit brought Jesus. The implication is the Holy Spirit did this on purpose. And third, the answer to that question, why would the Holy Spirit do this, is that repeatedly, far from being a place of weakness for Jesus, the wilderness has always been a place of strength. For him, You see, as we read about later in the gospels, the wilderness was the place that Jesus went to be filled with God's power to do his work. His time alone with God was his launch pad for the work that he was about to do. So don't, don't think like Rocky Balboa up against the, 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 the ring edge. He's in the corner and he's getting beaten up and he's about to break through. No, don't think that way. This is Jesus ready, ready for the fight. It can be hard for us to get our minds around this moment and we can often chalk this whole little interaction with Jesus up to the fact that he was God, but Luke doesn't want us to miss the point. This isn't about Jesus being God. This is about Jesus wrestling with the enemy filled with the Spirit's power. And that's what brings this story to us and makes it hopeful for us because Jesus is wrestling with the enemy of his soul filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. And we get to become like him. Luke 4, verses three through four says this, the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered, it is written Man shall not live on bread alone. Right out of the gate, the devil attempts to dislodge two realities inside of Jesus's mind. First, is God your father, Jesus? Is he truly your father? I mean, it had been roughly about 40 days. Jesus had been baptized and publicly God had declared that this was his son that he was proud of. And Jesus had laid down his God card He was living dependent. Would he second guess that declaration from the father? I mean, we recall Israel and their story. They forgot all the time. Israel had seen all these incredible miracles, all these remarkable things coming up out of Egypt. God had shown up time and time again. I mean, they had literally been told by God, you are my chosen people. And every day, they got to see a pillar of fire or a pillar of smoke. And yet they had doubted. They had doubted, God, are you really there? And we, we can read these stories sometimes and think to ourselves, man, we would have done so much better. I mean, if we could see God every single day, can you imagine you get up out of your car, get in your car and you're pulling out for, to head up to work and there's the pillar of fire. We're just gonna follow the pillar of fire on my way to work today. I mean, it seems like it would be so easy for us to believe, God, if you could just show us that pillar of smoke, that pillar of fire, it would be easier for us. But we too have short memories, don't we? How easy it is for me to forget in the dark what God has revealed in the light. But, The enemy also challenges another thing. He he goes after this idea of God as provider. Jesus, is God your provider? I mean, 40 days without food, Jesus was hungry. That's an understatement. But he knew that he had this prophetic mission to fulfill. He knew that he would be the new Moses. Moses that he would free the people from their slavery. He knew that was his calling. And he knew that he had to walk the path that God had laid out for him to walk. And so he chose to wait for God's provision, to wait for God's timing. This is hard, isn't it? I mean, again, Israel wrestled with this, this provision for their daily needs. I mean, they got manna from heaven and they complained. They wanted something more than just magic honey bread. They wanted meat. I mean, I get it. I guess some meat sometimes, you know. But God provides that too. I mean, so often... We wrestle with that provision. I want your provision now, God, in my timing, in my way. Lord, if you could just have it show up right now, that would be great. Makes me a little less dependent. And how often do I thanklessly overlook the manna that God has given me for that day? But Jesus doesn't bite sorry, I had to do (laughs) it. No, Jesus knows who God is and he knows who he is. His trust is set firmly in his father and in his father's provision. And so Jesus uses the scripture to ground the enemy in what was really real. Deuteronomy 8 verses 3 says this, he humbled you causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known to teach you. The man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Jesus isn't just speaking hyperbolically. He is literally hungry. He's literally thirsty. He's looking the devil in his face and saying, man does not live on bread alone. God wanted to show what was inside of Israel's heart. And so he gave them enough manna for every single day, but just enough for that day. And he taught Israel what it looked like to be dependent. And Jesus quotes that idea and pulls it into the present. And he tells the enemy, you have no power because I am dependent on my father's provision. There's so much that we could say about fasting, but we're not, we don't have time for it in this sermon. But the point here is that Jesus' true fasting was physically demonstrating his belief in God's provision and timing. He was putting his money where his mouth was, literally. Luke four, verses five through eight says this. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all of their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The enemy isn't done. He digs a little deeper and he goes after that very human desire for power and fame. He challenges thirdly, is God worthy of your singular worship? Is he worthy of it? Seeing that Jesus seems secure in his identity, the devil attempts to undermine the father's identity. He, his very glory is suddenly up for grabs and he's trying to get Jesus to take the father's glory. The devil is offering him a trade, worship for power and fame. Now the trick here is that Jesus was beginning the path to becoming the long-awaited king of Israel someday, Hopefully, very soon, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Someday. But before that, Jesus needed to go to the cross. The enemy says, hey, let's just skip that part. I can give you that authority and fame now. Israel struggled with both of these temptations throughout their story, wanting to be just like every other nation. The problem was they weren't like every other nation. They weren't supposed to be the center of their story. God was. And these same temptations, they're destroying our society right now. There's so many things competing for our worship. We all worship something, even the atheist. But the human story wasn't designed to have us at the center. It was designed to have a loving, heavenly father at the center. How often do I fall into that trap of putting myself in the center of my story as I crave power, authority, privilege, but Jesus points to another way. Again, Jesus, confident in his father's nature, trusting in God's plan, knowing that God would someday give him his glory, he stands firm. Now, as an aside, some of you might be wondering, did the devil really have the authority to give this what he claimed to have? That's a great question. And the answer is kind of like yes and no. First, he is, according to Jesus, the prince of this world. And John tells us in 1 John 5, 19, that the whole world is under his control. So yes, he has some ruling authority in this world, authority that was likely tricked out of our hands in the garden. But that's a different conversation for another day. The point is, he was likely offering Jesus something that he thought he had the power to give, but his kingdom is not going to stand. And what's more is in this moment Jesus stands up against the enemy and says no more. Through his life, his death and his resurrection Jesus begins a resurrection invasion. And he is leading the charge. You see all those things that Israel wanted him to be in the in the political realm Jesus was doing in the spiritual realm. Jesus is king and he will someday be king. And again Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy. This is the one where Moses says in Deuteronomy 6:13, "Fear the Lord your God, serve him only and take your oaths in his name." The word "fear" is kind of interpreted as worship in the New Testament, and it's used synonymously in a slightly different way that we think about the word "fear." This word carries with it that holy sense of awe that comes when you understand the nature of something, like the Grand Canyon. Anybody stood the edge of the Grand Canyon? Man, it's just like, takes your breath away. Or that time in, in the spring when Mount Hood is still covered in snow and we get one of those like epically clear days and it just takes your breath away. That's what the fear of the Lord looks like. Jesus is saying that we should stand in complete awe to the Father and serve him alone. He is showing us, those who follow him, how the nature of God's splendor should shake us to the very center of our being. But the enemy He's not done. Luke 4, verses 9 through 12 says this. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Finally, the devil pokes at that deepest kind of narrative in the human desire for self-preservation. But in Jesus' case, it's a bit deeper than that. For For the devil, this is a bit of a political power play. More than just him throwing himself off the temple. If God miraculously saved his son in front of all of those people, they would forcibly make him king. And thus, skip the cross. The enemy asks if God's way is the best way, or put another way, is God's way trustworthy? Did God really say, does that sound familiar? It's the same trick the devil has been using since the Garden of Eden. And when the enemy can't get you to question God's existence, he will always try to make you question his trustworthiness. This time the devil attempts to play the same game as Jesus by twisting the scriptures for his purpose. He knows who Jesus is and he quotes from the Psalms trying to corner Jesus in his own game. But Jesus has no time for it. And he pulls out his third quote from Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 6, 16, where he says, Do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massa. And the test that he's referring to is this test where the people of children of Israel failed. You check back when you have time to take a read of it. It's a very fascinating story. But the key to the story was that Israel was questioning God whether he loved them or was with them on the basis of him providing water. God, are you there? It sure doesn't feel like it. I mean, we can see all this miraculous stuff, but where is the water? The thing is, Jesus knew why he was here. And taking the throne in Jerusalem through some dramatic, angelic work was not God's plan. Jesus had a path of suffering in front of him that would lead him to the cross. He would die at the hands of his own creation, The temptation wasn't for that momentary saving that the angels would do. It was a temptation to sidestep the cross, to take the throne through political means and lead Israel without sacrifice, without dealing with our broken nature. The devil was trying to get Jesus to take the easy way out. And again, where Israel failed in their story, how often do I fail in the exact same place? Lord, I wanna do your work. I wanna do the things that you called me to, but could you make it just a little bit easier? It would be nice if it just didn't cost me anything. If, if I could follow you in a way that would kind of make my life just better without any of the sacrifice. And again, Jesus, he knows why he's there. He's like, no, I've got to go through the cross. Luke 4, verses 13 through 14 says this. When the devil had finished all of his tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the spirit and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. The devil wasn't done, but he was done for now. And Jesus, on the other hand, was just getting started with a renewed sense of purpose and filled with the Holy Spirit. He went to Galilee and began to preach a message of the good news of the gospel, to set in motion the Father's plan to create a people of his very own, passionate for good works. When I was in college, a professor came one point. He shared this uh, modern-day parable with us, and it was actually written by uh, an African missionary named James Agri. It's called the Parable of the Eagle. And a little summary version of it goes like this: There's a farmer, and he goes out into the forest one day by his farmland, and he finds on the ground this little baby eaglet. And he takes the eaglet back to his own farm. And there he's got like ducks and chickens and all sorts of stuff. And he begins the process of like raising this eagle as a chicken, feeding it chicken stuff, leaving it with all the other chickens. The only problem, of course, is that it's giant, right? I don't know if you guys have ever seen an eagle. They're like huge, like 10 feet across when their wings are out kind of thing. They're gigantic. But this thing grows up, this eagle grows up eating bird seed like a chicken, thinking that it's a chicken, about five years later, along comes a naturalist who's visiting the farmer and happens to notice, hey, you've got an eagle in your chicken pen. I don't know if you noticed that. He's like, oh, yeah, well, he used to be an eagle, but actually now he's a chicken. <laughs> no, the, the, the naturalist said, no, it, no, it's an eagle still. He's, he's, he's got the heart of the eagle. I will help him learn how to fly again. No, the owner said, it's a chicken. He'll never fly. So they agreed to a bit of a test. The the naturalist picked the eagle up and held it up and said with great intensity, eagle, you are an eagle. You belong in the sky, not on this earth. Stretch forth your wings and fly. And the eagle looked that way, looked that way, and then returned back to the ground and began eating with the chickens again. See, the, owners, the farmer says, I told you, he's a chicken. No, said so the naturalist, it's an eagle. Give me another chance tomorrow. So the next day, the naturalist shows up, grabs a chicken, goes up to the top of the barn, holds the eagle out and says, Eagle, you are an eagle. You belong in the sky, soaring and flying and, and, and being like an Eagle. Now be free, go and fly. And the eagle simply lowered to the ground, started hanging out with the chickens and eating the chicken feed again. The owner said, the farmer said, I told you, it's chicken. The naturalist wouldn't give up. No, no, this, this is wrong. He's an eagle. It still has the heart of an eagle. Just give me one more chance and I will make it fly tomorrow. The next morning, the naturalist rose early in the morning and he took the eagle outside of the city, away from the farm, to, the, to a high mountain. And the sun was just rising and, the, and, the, and its gold was pouring out over the, the valley that was in front of them, glistening with the joy of a beautiful morning. And he picked the eagle up and he said to it, Eagle, you are an eagle. You belong in the sky, not not on the earth. Stretch forth your wings and fly. The the eagle looked around and, and began to tremble a little bit as if maybe new life was starting to enter into it, but it wouldn't fly. And then the naturalist made it look at the sun And suddenly it stretched out its wings and it screeched just like only eagles can. And it mounted higher and higher and higher into the sky because it was an eagle. When we tell the story of the gospel often, we start with the fall. We start in this place where mankind is seen as this broken people who are tricked by the trickster of all tricksters. My friends, that's not where the story starts. Yeah, that's right. The story starts with this loving heavenly father with his son and his daughter standing in a garden. And he looks at his children. And he says, you are my son, you are my daughter. I've made you for something so incredible, something so amazing, now go and fly. If you guys remember back to our series in the Holy Spirit, There was this beautiful passage that we quoted from Romans eight, verse 16, where it says the spirit himself testifies, it's like works with disciples, talks to, encourages, exhorts our own spirit, trying to convince us that we are God's children. When when, When it comes to becoming like Jesus, It is essential that we remember that we are following him on a path of identity restoration. He is restoring us back to who we were always created to be, sons and daughters of the Most High. And this is a vigilant fight. What God thinks about me matters. What I think about God matters. And we need to take seriously the work of defeating the enemy's voice. Jesus gives us his example. And what does he do? Repeatedly going back to the scriptures, going back to God's words, going back to those places and reminding the enemy of who he is and who God is. That is the work that lies before us as we consider becoming like him, fighting forward one foot in front of the the other, leaning into who God says I am, my identity and who he is, his identity. Jesus called this picking up your cross. Now I have a little confession I need to make. I spent 13 days in Maui. It was epic. So wonderful, so beautiful. I came back, I kind of prepared my sermon before I left, came back, spent yesterday all day in this text, wrestling through it, trying to kind of get it all tightened up, get it to where I want it to be. I got into the evening time and I laid in my bed trying to fall asleep and God just kept bringing back to me all of these things about who is my identity. Is God my father? Is God my provider? Is He worthy of my singular worship? Is He trustworthy? All night, long, 3:30, four o'clock in the morning, I start to go a little bonkers. My wife will attest to it. I was huffing and puffing and sitting down and frustrated and turning into a toddler. 13 days in Maui, drowned out by one sleepless night. The enemy sticks his finger into my heart. Is God who he says he is? Are you really the lead pastor? I mean, would anybody really want to listen to you tomorrow morning? Is God really gonna show up and provide for his church? Is he really? Is this plan that you feel like God has led you into, is it trustworthy? All night long. I wish I I was more like Jesus. I wish it was just like, nope, I'm good. Get out of my face, Satan. But there was moments where I was like stamping my feet. It's amazing. You take away sleep from a person. We just go crazy. And and suddenly I am left as this person asking these questions of myself. But this is what it means to become like Jesus. This is what it means to step forward, to fight forward, to remind yourself of who you are to remind the enemy of who God is. Yeah. And sometimes the greatest sermons that we preach are the ones that we preach to ourselves. And that's what becoming like Jesus looks like. I want to invite Molly on up to the stage. We have, over the course of this last season, been moving our times of prayer up to the front. And there's some really, really important reasons for that. Part of it is is just wanting to draw attention to the fact that this is where God is gonna do a bunch of powerful things, up front and center. We we want everybody to see as we pray and as we reach out, as we we talk to God about who he is and what he's calling us to. But the other reason is is that we believe that the greatest work is done by Jesus. And we wanna put Jesus on display. You might have noticed over the course of the last months that we have slowly but surely been leaving off our old name. In the Bible, God often takes people from where they are, Abram, Sarai, and makes them into something new. Abraham, Sarah, I will make you into a nation. And we believe that God is calling us in the same way to set aside a part of our old identity, to claim the truest thing about us. And so Jesus will be at the center of this church. He will be at the center of our name. He will be at the center of everything that we do. And moving forward, we will be a Jesus church. Just
0: stand your feet and pray. Thanks for listening. For more resources and to partner with us through giving, visit us at ajesuschurch.org.